Let us pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, there are a few things that we do in central Ohio better, and let's be honest, perhaps all of Ohio. You want to take a guess? What we do better in central Ohio? and Hate the snow. Hate the snow. Good one. Um, be angry about four inches of snow. Um, that's true. Any other guesses? We do. We do. Yeah, O-H. Ah, see? Related to that, it seems that we do something better than anywhere else, and that is cheer on our beloved Buckeyes. 104,000 people packed into one space, cheering on just a few college students as they duke it out against other college students. How many of you have been at the horseshoe before? Seen a game? All right. So you kind of know it is a little special, right? Like, even if you're not necessarily a football fan, people get excited. People are rooting on a team. And it doesn't matter, like, the Indiana game I went to when I was in graduate school and it was, like, 370 to 2. People were still excited. It might have been, like, the guy in the engineering department who, like, really wanted to walk on, and he might be quarterback, but people were still going to root for him. Everybody was excited. Here's the thing. You don't even have to have gone to Ohio State to cheer for the Buckeyes, which I always found to be interesting, right? Like, it's somehow woven so much into who we are as people who are from Ohio that you just, like, are a graduate by osmosis. You know, so long as you were born here, somehow the dust of the horseshoe lands on you at birth, it sinks into your skin, and you are permanently a member of this great state and a part of this football team for the rest of your life. And I'll be honest with you, it's not just here. When we were at the seminary in Austin, we were about a quarter mile from Texas Stadium. Yeah, it's just as bad down there. But let me ask a question, and this is one that'll just be kind of interesting. I, I don't know this. How many of you have ever been Division I athletes? Can you raise your hand if any of you were Division I athletes? Okay, no one. Because I was going to say, if one of you was a Division I athlete, you may want to turn off for a couple minutes because it wouldn't have been applicable to, be, applicable to you. But, you know... Division I athletes, I could understand the type of momentum that comes into watching another Division I sports team duke it out, right? You were there on that field. You know what the grit and determination were like. You know what it's like to have 100,000 people cheering you on and celebrating you as you do what you're supposed to do. Now, Many of us haven't, and it doesn't look like at least any of us, myself included, have not been a Division I athlete. My illustrious sports career has been on the pocked-marked cow fields of Grove City College in my undergrad career as I played every single intramural sport I possibly could. The literally ankle-breaking fields of the Park of Roses as I played ultimate frisbee for two years and, yes, broke my ankle and the relatively well-kept intramural softball fields off of Kenny Road, where I would play softball with my graduate school friends for years. And compared to the other two, it was like I was on a professional ball field. But I'll watch the Buckeyes. 
I was upset that they didn't make the playoffs this year. Like, for a moment, actually emotionally upset about it. Don't get me started about the Columbus crew, though. I mean, we've talked about this a couple of times already, that we can actually think about going together to see the Columbus crew next season, and in a few years we could go together at a brand new stadium in downtown Columbus. You know, that's enough to celebrate and be really excited. But why do we do this? Like, I imagine if an alien came and looked at the horseshoe on any given Saturday in the fall, how do you even tear that apart? There's all these people watching other people do something. Well, scientific studies point to a couple of reasons why. One is, is that it is pleasurable. We like watching sports teams. As we watch sports teams together, dopamine gets released, uh, a hormone that, that, ha- that helps us feel pleasure, helps us feel happiness. We just like doing it. Seems to be a good reason. The second thing is that it turns out it is very relatable. We have what are called mirror neurons in our brains, and they're the, they're the neurons that help us be empathetic to other people. And so when we watch people run in the Olympics, there's part of our brain that is firing that says, I know what it's like to run really fast too. There are studies that have shown when somebody starts throwing a ball in the yard or even says the word ball, the same neurons fire in our head as if we were throwing the ball ourselves on the field. And finally, the third one that we found is that it is powerful. When our sports team wins and we are on top, it releases testosterone and it helps us realize we have vanquished our enemies once again. We have been successful, powerful, and on top. Now, that, of course, doesn't just land on sports teams. It seems like every chance we get, we are finding the folks that we can compete against. But it makes us feel good. It makes us feel on top, and it makes us feel powerful that we have vanquished our enemies. We are on top again. And so it's interesting to begin to see what happens when Jesus the Christ walks onto the field for the first time. And by the way, let me tell you that this will be my one and only annual sports analogy sermon. Um, (laughs) I don't do this very often, but every once in a while. So it's interesting to see what happens when Jesus is walking on the field for the first time. We already know that from the beginning of his time here on earth, Jesus has made a significant impact on how the world operates. He has changed the game. When we walked through Advent together and we kept hearing about prepare, the world is going to change. Everything is going to bend in on itself. Time itself is going to be different. We remember the early part of this passage in Luke. We talked about it where John was saying, come on, let's get going. Somebody's coming. Something special is happening. The rules are not the same anymore. And then we talked last week that Magi and and Herod, These magi who were traveling nine months to go see Jesus, they were Gentiles, they had no reason, except they saw a star. Something's different. Something has started to change. And again, don't forget, we just talked about this passage, the early part of Luke 3, already. There's anticipation And John says, you brood of vipers, who told you? Which, again, not the greatest way to start a sermon. 
on any given day is to tell the people that are gathered with you, you brood of vipers. So in particular, John seems really excited about what's going on. John the Baptist seems like a really good fan, a really good spectator. He is trying to get everybody he knows to join Team Jesus. He's inviting them to be baptized, inviting them to have their lives changed. And we don't even have to be at the Nazarite level that John is. We don't have to change our clothing. We don't have to wander in the wilderness and eat locust and wild honey, unless you really like locust and wild honey. But Jesus is coming. And to John's reading, it looks like he's going to be the one that's going to win. And you hear power running through John's statement. Just wait, everybody. Jesus is going to come with the winnowing fork in hand and is going to separate out the good and the bad, and the bad are going to get tossed in the unquenchable fire. If you were thinking about being on Team Jesus and Team John, well, this might be a pretty good pep talk. Everybody, come on down, get baptized, change your lives, because the one who is going to be the winner is coming very short period of time. Good, good pep talk. And then we see Jesus walk onto the field. And here's the moment. And what happens? The Trinity appears. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all together. And I want to put this passage up again, Luke 3.22, so you can see it. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. I don't know very many places in Scripture where we could witness the full Trinity all with each other. We hear a little about it in John. But here in this moment, here is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit all together in one moment, speaking together, in conversation together. That should cause us some surprise. There is so much significance to this moment because it... While John said things were going to change, it's changing in a way that even the number one fan might not have entirely expected. The three are together, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But what's unique about this moment is it's also Jesus, the human one. The one who was born here on earth. The one who had hands like us, who had a face like us, who had feet like us, who walked and talked and ate and drank and celebrated and mourned and ran away from his parents and came back. This is not just the spiritual Christ that we hear in John, even though we know he exists. No, this is something special because it is also Jesus Christ, human, amongst us. We hear these words, with you, I am well pleased. Which that phrase, well pleased, is deeper than just I like you, or good job for 
doing what you were supposed to do. No, it's taking delight in something. It's relishing an individual. It's that moment when you know that you're with somebody you are close to and you take a step back and you say, I'm just so happy that you're here with me. It's love. There's pleasure in just Jesus' being there in that moment. And we can hear the words, you are my son, you are my daughter, you are beloved, with you I am well pleased. Because in this moment, we can also hear echoes of early Eden, of early creation, when everything was good and very good. You are my son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. You are good, very good. And here's the thing. Jesus didn't have to be baptized. Where in it would the rules be that the Trinity, the holy God of this world, had any sort of obligation to follow the rules that we had to? That in order to show, to order to be sacramental, to order to do the things that folks did, you know, baptism is not just a Christian thing. It was something that the Jewish people had practiced and celebrated. It's not unfamiliar. But here, the Trinity, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, engages in the act of humanity, enters humanity's field, comes and is with us. And in this moment, the rules change. There will be no more spectators once Jesus is done. Pentecost will come. The Spirit will come on us. We will also be able to hear the words, you are my son, you are my daughter, you are beloved with you, I am well pleased. That's not just for Jesus. There are not any more sidelines in this world after this moment. Friends, no more spectator seats. And that means that a lot of folks who we may have liked being on the opposition, opposing team might not be playing against us anymore. It means we might be on the same field together. It means that perhaps the same time that we can hear Jesus say, you are my beloved, we hear God say, you are my beloved, it might be from somebody else. And as we walk through Luke, we will see those moments when Jesus says, you, the person who's not in power, I love you. Be part of what I'm creating here. And they follow. So then the question, I think, to ride with the sports theme is, who ends up being the opposition? If John's talking about Team Jesus is going to come with the winnowing fork, is going to separate out the wheat and the chaff, and the chaff is going to be burnt in an unquenchable fire. Yeah, I want that team to lose We've already made clear that I'm on the winning team and I can be the wheat. Who becomes the chaff? We're the people we can root against. Especially if there's no spectators and we're all on the field. And I think when we read Luke and we think about this, we can forget sometimes that wheat and chaff come from the same plant. It's not as though we have a wheat plant that's all perfectly put together, and then we have a chaff plant over here that, well, we don't like that one. I'm not a farmer, but I'm aware that those two are linked together. 
There's not a separation of wheat and chaff as the grain grows. We all carry chaff. The things that we create carry chaff. Our systems, our way of life, the way that we put things together will always carry some chaff. It's the reality of a broken world. The opposition, the chaff that burns with the unquenchable fire, is as much as we are the wheat. There are places in our own lives, places in our systems, places in our world that need to be winnowed away. I know there's moments in my life where I still carry the chaff that I pray for Jesus to winnow away. And over time, as we explore through Luke, we will see how Jesus responds to the chaff that holds the wheat within. He calls out scribes, the rulers who are seeking oppression, not those who are on the outside already, or those folks who are being squeezed by the chaff that surrounds them. Our drive for power of domination, of vanquishing, may be our chaff. As we sit on the sidelines rooting for the people on the other side, to be burnt in the unquenchable fire. But it seems to me that the more that we can orient ourselves towards burning it away in ourselves and in the systems that we create, the more opportunities there are for Jesus to reveal the good. And so, friends, we are no longer spectators. The Spirit is in you God looks at us and says, you are my beloved children. We're not separated. And in those moments when our chaff bounces up against us and we want that wheat to be exposed, Jesus is with us. Jesus invites us to be a part of a new way of being, new rules to our enterprise. In closing, I want to read again Isaiah 43. This is God's story to us. This is the reminder that we are beloved. This is one of the few places, it is the only place in Scripture where, Jesus, where God explicitly says, I love you. And so, friends, hear these words again and believe them. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire and you shall not be burnt, And the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom. Ethiopia and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my sight and honored and I love you. I give people in return for you, nations in exchange for your life. 
Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give them up and to the south. Do not withhold. Bring my sons from far away and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone. Everyone. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Thanks be to God.